Good morning, and welcome to 5 at 8. It's Sunday, September 24th, 2023, and with me here is Linda Carlisle. I'm Mark Overman, and here are the day's top stories. In this episode, we will talk about Ukrainian forces launching air attacks on occupied Crimea, NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft returning to Earth with soil samples from asteroid Bennu, Europe's struggle to meet its pledge of providing Ukraine with a million artillery shells, the sentencing of Uyghur academic Rahile Dawut by China, and the closure of Netflix's DVD distribution plant in Anaheim, California. Story number one. According to the New York Times, Russian-installed authorities in occupied Crimea have reported that Ukrainian forces launched another air attack on the peninsula, marking the second assault in two days. The attack targeted the Sevastopol Bay, where Russia's Black Sea fleet is based. Air defenses were activated in the area, and debris from a downed rocket fell in the bay. The recent strikes on Crimea are part of Ukraine's campaign to disrupt Moscow's military operations and sever its supply lines. Controlling Crimea is crucial for Russia to maintain its war effort and hold its captured territories in Ukraine. The impact of Saturday's attack on strategic targets is yet to be confirmed. It's rather concerning to see the escalation in this conflict, Linda. Ukraine's intensified airstrike on Crimea is a clear sign of the increasing tensions. This is not the first time we are witnessing such power struggles. Reminds you of other territorial conflicts like Kashmir and the Gaza Strip, doesn't it? It's a recurrent pattern in geopolitical struggles. The peninsula has been a strategic advantage for Russia, being used to launch attacks into Ukraine's territories. Now, with Ukraine's intensified airstrikes, the dynamics are quite complex. Absolutely, it's a chess game of sorts. Both parties are trying to use their assets to gain an upper hand. I mean, look at how Russia has been using Crimea to stockpile fuel and ammunition. But, uh, it's not just about military strategy, right? It's about the people, too. The residents, they're caught in the middle of it all. Yes, Mark. The human element cannot be overlooked. The local authorities and residents are left to deal with the repercussions of these attacks. And this is not unique to Crimea. Think about the residents of disputed regions like Kashmir and the Gaza Strip. The situation is, unfortunately, similar in many ways. Right, Linda. It's a tough situation. But from a strategic standpoint, Ukraine seems to be making a calculated move here. The goal appears to be to disrupt Moscow's military operations. But, as always, there's a lot at stake and a lot of uncertainty. And let's not forget the historical context of Crimea's annexation in 2014. That still influences the current dynamics and further complicates the strategic objectives of both Russia and Ukraine. It's a complex web of power, control, and historical tensions. Story number two. According to the BBC, NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft is set to return to Earth on Sunday, bringing with it soil samples collected from the surface of asteroid Bennu. The samples, which will be dropped off in a capsule, are expected to provide new insights into the formation of the planets and the origins of life. The capsule will undergo a fiery descent and is scheduled to touch down in Utah. The recovery teams have taken precautions to avoid contamination of the samples, which will be transported to NASA's Johnson Space Center for analysis. After the drop-off, the spacecraft will continue its mission to rendezvous with another asteroid called Apophis in 2029. Do you know, Linda, when I first read about NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission, it felt like something out of a science fiction novel. Sending a spacecraft millions of miles away to an asteroid and then bringing back samples, it's simply awe-inspiring. 
But it also made me think of the Genesis mission in 2004 and the crash that occurred. How do you think we've learned from that incident, and how have these learnings impacted the OSIRIS-REx mission? That's a great point, Mark. The Genesis mission, despite its unfortunate end, was a pivotal moment in our space exploration history. It taught us some valuable lessons, especially about the importance of meticulous planning and rigorous testing. With OSIRIS-REx, it is evident that NASA has taken those lessons to heart. The careful planning and testing that went into ensuring the safe return of the Bennu samples, including the extensive checks on the gravity switches and the presence of a breach team, reflect the learnings from the Genesis mission. Also, the use of thermal shields and parachutes to safely land the capsule shows a significant advancement in our technology. Yeah, it's fascinating how we've turned past failures into learning opportunities. Now let's talk about the Bennu samples. Why are they so important? What can they tell us about our universe? Well, Mark, asteroids like Bennu are like time capsules. They contain materials that have remained virtually unchanged since the formation of our solar system. So by studying these samples, scientists hope to learn more about the early solar system and the processes that led to the formation of planets. More intriguingly, though, these carbonaceous asteroids may hold clues about the origin of life. They could contain organic compounds that might have played a crucial role in sparking life on our planet and possibly elsewhere in the universe. Whoa, that's deep. So what's next after OSIRIS-REx? Are there other similar missions planned? In fact, after dropping off the Bennu samples, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft will be commanded to fly onto another asteroid called Apophis, with a rendezvous expected in 2029. As our technology continues to improve, we can expect more such missions aimed at uncovering the secrets of our universe. Story number three. According to the New York Times, Europe's military industry may struggle to meet its pledge of providing Ukraine with a million artillery shells by March due to a lack of resources and supply chain bottlenecks. Despite efforts to increase supplies, manufacturers are unable to ramp up production fast enough to achieve the goal. The European Union and Norway have sent Ukraine around one-quarter of the required shells since last March, mostly from military stockpiles. However, these stocks have now run too low for most militaries to provide more. European Union states are now seeking to purchase ammunition from manufacturers within the bloc. But this alone will not close the gap. The ambitious plan has spurred governments and the arms industry into action, with manufacturers receiving significant orders and predicting increased production in the coming years. However, it remains uncertain whether the one million rounds can be delivered to Ukraine by the deadline, as reported by the New York Times. Tell you what, Linda, this situation with the European Union struggling to meet its commitment to supply a million artillery shells to Ukraine has me a bit rattled. I mean, Europe's got no shortage of industrial prowess, right? Yet, they're grappling with an atrophied military industry. It's like they've got their hands tied behind their backs. Well, Mark, I think it's important to remember that Europe has had a different approach to military matters since the end of the Cold War. There's been more focus on diplomacy and peacekeeping, which is commendable. However, this situation does highlight the limitations of such a stance. Limitations? That's an understatement, Linda. It's a wake-up call. Europe's inaction in the military sector has put them in a bind. Now they're scrambling to fulfill a promise that they made to Ukraine. It's not just about the shells. It's about credibility, trust, and regional security. I see your point, Mark. But let's not forget that this is also an opportunity for Europe to reassess its military industry and perhaps redirect resources to be better prepared for future commitments. 
Challenges often act as catalysts for growth and change, don't they? That's true, Linda. But the bottom line is, if you're going to talk the talk, you got to walk the walk. Europe promised Ukraine a million rounds of ammunition. Now they need to deliver, not just for Ukraine, but for the sake of their own reputation on the global stage. It's a complex issue, and there's a lot at stake. I guess only time will tell how Europe rises to this challenge and what implications it has for their military-industrial complex moving forward. Story number four. Rahile Dawut, a prominent Uyghur academic, has been sentenced to life imprisonment by China for endangering state security, as reported by the BBC. The 57-year-old professor lost her appeal this month after being detained in 2017. China has faced accusations of human rights abuses against the Uyghur population, with reports of over one million Uyghurs being detained in re-education camps. Dawut's sentencing has been condemned by human rights groups, who call for her immediate release. She is an expert on Uyghur folklore and traditions, and had been teaching at Xinjiang University before her arrest. China denies the allegations of genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang. What a devastating blow to academic freedom and human rights. The sentencing of Rahile Dawut, a respected Uyghur academic, to life imprisonment by China is a chilling reminder of the ongoing repression in the region. Dawut's work is crucial in preserving and promoting Uyghur folklore and traditions. This sentence, for what the Chinese authorities are calling endangering state security, is a stark violation of academic freedom. It's heartbreaking and deeply concerning. Dawood's case is not an isolated incident, but part of a systemic crackdown on intellectual and academic freedom in China. The Chinese authorities have been particularly harsh on Uyghur intellectuals, with many being detained, arrested, and imprisoned since 2016. It's not just about silencing dissent, but also about suppressing Uyghur culture and identity, which Dawood was so passionately working to preserve. Absolutely. It's a blatant effort to erase a distinct ethno-religious identity. And let's not forget the broader context of this oppressive regime, the re-education camps, where over a million Uyghurs have been detained against their will. The international community has been vocal in condemning these camps, with several countries, including the United States, accusing China of committing genocide in Xinjiang. Right. And it's not just about accusations. There have been a series of revealing documents like the police files obtained by the BBC earlier this year that shed light on the grim reality of these camps. It's a gross violation of human rights, with reports of systematic rape, armed officers, and even a shoot-to-kill policy for those trying to escape. The international response, while vocal, needs to be more robust, considering the scale and severity of these violations. Couldn't agree more, Linda. The question is... How can the international community effectively respond to these abuses? Economic sanctions could be an option, but they might end up hurting the average Chinese citizen more than the government. Perhaps international courts could play a more significant role. After all, if these allegations hold up, they amount to crimes against humanity. That's a valid point, Mark. It's indeed a complex issue with no easy solutions. But at the very least, we must keep the spotlight on these violations and continue to demand accountability from the Chinese government. And while we do that, let's not forget the human cost of this repression. The millions of Uyghurs living in fear, and brave individuals like Rahile Dawut, who are paying a heavy price for their work and their identity. Story number five. Netflix is closing its DVD distribution plant in Anaheim, California, marking the end of an era for the company. 
The plant, which once processed 1.2 million DVDs per week and employed 50 people, now has just six employees left. The closure comes as streaming has rendered DVDs obsolete, with DVD revenue totaling $60 million for the first six months of 2023, compared to Netflix's streaming revenue of $6.5 billion. Despite the decline of the DVD business, some loyal customers are disappointed, citing the deeper and more diverse library of DVDs compared to streaming services. According to the New York Times, Netflix is allowing DVD customers to hold on to their final rentals to ease the backlash. Have you ever thought about how far we've come, Linda? I mean, Netflix closing its last DVD distribution plant signals the end of an era. It's a bit nostalgic, I guess. Not too long ago, we were all waiting for our DVDs in the mail, and now it's all about streaming. Absolutely. It's been a massive shift in a relatively short period of time. DVD rentals were the norm, and now they're viewed as outdated. It's a testament to how rapidly technology can change our habits and expectations, but it's also a stark reminder of the implications for businesses that don't adapt quickly enough. Oh, no doubt about that. Blockbuster's downfall is a classic example. They held on to the brick-and-mortar model for too long, and Netflix swooped in with the convenience of mail-order rentals. And then, they changed the game again with streaming, essentially making their own DVD rental business obsolete. Indeed, it's quite fascinating. It's not just about the technology, but also the business model. Netflix's subscription model, first with DVDs and then with streaming, has been influential. It's all about providing ongoing value to retain customers. That approach has been adopted widely now in various forms by different industries. That's true, Linda. But you know, it's not been all rosy. The move to streaming has sparked debates about compensation for creators. Streaming revenues are not always as beneficial for the people who actually make the shows and movies we enjoy. The economic dynamics of streaming are definitely a contentious issue. It's a complex ecosystem with multiple stakeholders, from production companies to actors, writers, and even viewers. The shift from physical rentals to digital streaming has far-reaching implications for all of them. Well, we can only hope that as the industry continues to evolve, it finds a balance that works for everyone. It's clear that streaming is the future but we need to ensure it's a future that respects and rewards the hard work of everyone involved in creating the content we all enjoy. Very well put, Mark. As technology continues to advance, it's essential to keep the human aspect in focus. After all, at the core of all this, it's about storytelling and connecting with audiences. The medium might change, but the essence of what makes entertainment enjoyable and meaningful remains the same. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.